in 2014. So I started the year working at a catering company for $12 an hour. And I was working at an MMA gym as a receptionist for $9 an hour. And then I was working as a lacrosse coach at a high school. And that was a like $5,000 stipend for three months. And when the lacrosse gig ended, it was May. And I realized, okay, now I have my catering and my um, MMA gym and that's it. And I don't really know how I'm going to be paying my bills moving forward. I had about $1,000 in savings and was like, oh my God, when this runs out, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like I have reached the end of the road and it was overwhelming in the worst sense. I just felt trapped and scared and very much so ashamed. And I felt really resentful of my college degree because my debt was by far my biggest bill each month. And it just kept coming. And I was like, I'm such an idiot for going to college. I'm not even using my degree. This is so stupid. It's so expensive. Everything feels unfair. I feel like a fool because I can't get it together. What is wrong with me? Like, what is wrong with me that I can't figure this out? That was Kara Perez, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 183. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I can't wait to introduce you to today's guest and to dig into our honest conversation about money, which is one of my favorite things to do real talk about. But before we get to that, I would love to quickly read you a recent iTunes review. Today's review is from Hanabi718, and they say, supremely satisfying and perfectly uncomfortable. (laughs) Isn't that the best subject line? Perfectly uncomfortable. I love it. Um, These podcast episodes are hilarious and lighthearted while being deeply reflective and critical, all in the name of growth, learning, and improvement for a world where we can all thrive however that looks for us. Nicole does an amazing job listening and asking thought-provoking, unexpected questions. That's such a nice review. That makes me so happy. Thanks so much for that. And thanks to everyone else who's taken a minute or two to rate and review the show. It's such a simple thing to do, but it really helps to boost our visibility. And I so appreciate it. Huge thanks as well, of course, to the 400 plus people in our Patreon community whose contributions of $1 or more per episode are literally what make this entire show possible. Seriously, the show would not exist without those folks since Real Talk Radio is 100% listener supported with no ads or sponsors. That just means that these conversations are financially supported by awesome regular people just like you. You can join us and learn more about all the fun bonuses that you get as a community member. There are so many over at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Your financial support is what will allow me to keep making three new episodes per month, and it pays everyone involved in creating the show. That includes me, as well as my sound engineer, Adam Day, and every single one of my guests. Yep, all the guests whose stories you love are indeed getting paid for the time that they spend with us. And higher rates are always paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. I would love to have you in our fun community, and your contribution will go toward the funding goal of being able to get transcripts made for future episodes, which is an important step in making the show more inclusive for all. 
And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Kara Perez. Kara is the founder of Bravely Go, a feminist financial education company. Bravely focuses on bringing actionable and accessible financial education to people via pop-up events and online community. And Kara has been featured in Forbes, Glamour, ABC Nightline News, and US News and World Report as a financial expert. In this episode, Kara and I talk about money from so many different angles, how to discuss it with friends and family, different ways to handle it in a romantic relationship, letting go of shame and regret around past money mistakes, initial steps to take for debt repayment and investing, and so much more. Kara shares the real numbers of her past earnings and debts, talks about systemic challenges versus personal responsibility when it comes to money, and then answers a handful of great and super honest listener questions. This is actually the kickoff episode, or I guess the little preview episode maybe, to January's upcoming Money Month, where all three episodes will dive deeply into the realm of all things money-related. And I'm so grateful to everything that Kara shared with us about that topic in this episode. I hope that you enjoy it just as much, and that like me, you're left feeling more empowered and less alone. So all of that starts in just a moment. And as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at realtalkradiopodcast.com. All right, we are good to go. Kara, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's very exciting to be here. I'm excited too. I always like connecting with people where we have mutual friends or have kind of like circled around the same orbit for a while. And then to actually get to sit down and chat is really fun. Yes, I completely agree. Tell me something that you have been totally obsessed with lately. Ooh, okay. So I'm not going to lie. I was deeply obsessed with, oh gosh, now I'm forgetting the name of it. Oh no, the Netflix show, The Politician. And for a couple of different reasons. One, I love shows where hot people do dramatic things. And <laughs> two, I love the discussion and the angle the show took around like power and politics and money. Because for those who haven't seen it yet or aren't familiar with it, it focuses on a high school presidential election, like student body president. But it's so big picture and it takes place in California and these kids come from like insane wealth, like billions of dollars of wealth. And so the show is very beautiful. And also it's wrestling with these questions of of big picture politics, but through a high school lens. And that is just my jam. So I watched every, it's like an eight episode show and I watched them twice. So <laughs> that's an obsession, I would say. Interesting. I watched the little, you know, Netflix puts like the preview clip, right? Like up high above. I watch it and I was like, eh, I don't know if this is for me, but now that you have given such a good endorsement, maybe I will have to go back and watch it. It's definitely a little intense and it's definitely dramatic. It's the guy who did Glee, whose name is also escaping me right now. So it's very, you know, there are some over the top moments. So no judgment if you don't like it, but it was right up my alley. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's funny when you said about beautiful people doing dramatic things. I'm like, you mean Gossip Girl? That was oh my, my version of that. Although not at all, uh, you know, politically or socially aware, really. <laughs> Oh, listen, I am a fan of like the silliest, um, some people would say like trashiest shows, but I just, I love it. Anything on the CW, I'm here for, you know? <laughs> yeah, I feel like I go through phases of, particularly if I'm really engaged with 
the news and like a lot of heavier real world things, I find that I need my media to be ridiculous, like light and, you know, not as like aware or awake necessarily. And it's why I have realized I rewatch things a lot because it feels safe in a way. I already know what's going to happen. I already know that I like it. I already know that I can handle it. I don't know if that sounds silly, but it's definitely something that I find myself going through phases of, you know, the, the range of my media. It's like, something really serious and then something just completely ridiculous. Oh, same. I feel exactly the same. Like the world is so heavy so much of the time now. And I do think it's very important to stay informed with real world issues. But then there's only so much that your brain and your heart can take sometimes. So I rewatch stuff all the time. I mean, Parks and Rec, I have seen an absurd amount of time. But it's it's funny. It's light. I love the characters. I learn from the show. I quote it all the time. Like, it's great. So I am I'm absolutely with you. And sometimes you need your media to just be light, fluffy and goes down easy. Mm -hmm. Like emotional comfort food. Yes. I yeah, I love that. It's funny. You're making me think, "Mm, what can I rewatch tonight? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm really excited to get to have a conversation with you about money. It's certainly not the first time that we've talked about money on the show. It certainly won't be the last. I'm actually going to be doing in January our first themed month where all three episodes of the month come at the same topic from different angles. And January is going to be money month, kind of um, inspired by knowing I was going to have this conversation with you. And then once I saw like what my list of questions were at the topics I wanted to talk about. I'm like, that's more than a two hour conversation. <laughs> oh, so I'm excited to dig into this subject and kind of get the ball rolling. Um, oh my gosh, January sounds amazing. I will be tuning into all of those episodes. <laughs> um, and yeah, there's so much to cover with money. I mean, something I always talk about in my business is that money touches every area of our life. And we like to pretend it doesn't. We're you know, like, oh, it's rude to talk about, or it's embarrassing to think about, or I just hate it. It's like, well, money's there. It's affecting your life anyway. We may as well talk about it, learn about it, and do what we can to change it. Mm-hmm. So uh, before we dig into some more specific questions, will you just give like a quick overview of your business? Yes. So I have a company called Bravely Go and we do feminist finances. Um, I try to come at money from an intersectional lens and also a practical, um, accessible, actionable lens because I find that big picture discussion of money tends to be very vague, very unhelpful. So I like to get down and as specific as possible. We do pop-up events around the U.S. um, that focus on different financial topics. So actually in January 2020, we're doing an event called Talk Money to Me that is going to focus on wealth building. So debt payoff, negotiation, investing, and then financial independence. Um, I work with people as a money coach. We have our online communities, of course, the blog, the social media, um, all that stuff. So that's what Bravely is all about. Yeah, I love that. I know that you recently presented at a conference and talked about why you and your long-term partner don't share money. Will you tell me about that? Yes. So I've been with my boo who... um, on the internet and on the podcasts we call T-Bone. I don't reveal his name. Um, uh, We've been together for almost six years and we don't share any finances. Actually, we just had a discussion last week about maybe getting a phone plan together and it was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Um, So we're also not married, but we consider ourselves partnered. And predominantly there are two big reasons. One, he still has student loan debt. I've been debt free for 
four years now. Um, I It's really important to me that he pays that off. And it's very important to him that he pays that off by himself. He sees it as sort of like his mountain to conquer. Um, So I didn't want to combine finances until he was debt free. And then beyond that, we actually view money very differently. I mean, big picture, we're the same. We're both pretty frugal. We're both good savers. We're both, it's not like he's a spendy McSpendy and I'm over here like a frugal fanny being like, no, 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 never spend any money. But it's really important to him that he has the freedom to do what he wants with his money without having to check in. And if we shared finances, we would have a household budget. And even if we gave each other an allowance, you know, you can spend a hundred bucks however you want. Like he's a musician, for example. And sometimes he's like, I'm going to go buy a $120 guitar pedal and it's going to be fun. And so we basically decided it doesn't really make sense for us to combine money right now because it would be too stressful. We're focused on different goals. Um, when it makes more sense, we're happy to take that step, but there's also no pressure. Yeah. Okay. I have like a million follow-up questions. Let's do this. (laughs) So first thing, since you said that things aren't combined, how on a day-to-day, like real life basis, do you handle paying for stuff, shared expenses, that kind of thing? Yeah. So we each have different accounts in our own name. So like I pay rent and then I just Venmo him and say, you know, you owe me X amount for rent. And then like the internet is in his name. So then he'll just Venmo me and say, you owe me X amount. So we Venmo a lot. Um, But when it comes to like, we went out this past weekend, we went to see a concert and he bought the tickets and then I bought the drinks and paid for the uh, ride share. And I'm sure one of us paid more, but no one was like, well, you owe me seven fifty. Like, you know, those kinds of things we just kind of chalk up. And then on a bigger scale, in terms of like, how do we talk about money in our relationship? Like we are very frank and very clear. Just the other day, I was like, how much do you have left in student loans? And he just logged in and let me <laughs> like poke around his student loan lender. And he's done the same with his investment accounts. He's done the same with his life insurance policy. He just lets me see everything. And I do the same to him. He's not quite as interested in <laughs> in it as I am, but we have full transparency about money. Has that always been the case for you too? Yeah. So we started dating March 2014. And then by like June 2014, I had my financial like come to Jesus moment and realized I needed to get my financial life together. So pretty much from as soon as we started dating, money was on the table as a discussion because I was learning about money and changing my life so that I could focus on paying off my debt. And when we started dating, he made $24,000 a year and I made $18,000 a year. So I felt like we had to talk about money because it was like, yo, we can't afford to do very much. (laughs) Like date nights are hard because we don't have any money. So let's talk about what else we can do. Oh, and hey, I'm trying to pay off this last 18K in student loans. And that's really my focus. And here's how that will impact you. I mean, we had that conversation on like our sixth or seventh date. So it's always been really transparent. And neither one of us, we've definitely had like hard moments in the conversation. He's definitely felt at times like I'm putting pressure on him to pay off his loans faster than he would like, which I fully admit I am. (laughs) Not all the time, but sometimes I'm like, oh, if you could just do a little extra. And he's like, calm down. Um, So it's not always like we're holding hands, skipping through the field as we talk about money, but it is always um, an open door policy. 
Yeah, I love that. The idea of, you know, getting as close as possible to having it be an emotionally neutral topic, which I know isn't always the case, right? Money can be really charged. But if it's something that's regularly discussed in a relationship, especially, you know, with someone that you are sharing a lot of expenses and day-to-day life stuff with, the more that it can just be normalized and not such a big deal, I have also found that to be helpful too. It's, if it's something, it's honestly, I feel similarly about sex. You know, if it's like, we only talk about this, you know, once every however long, either when there's like a problem or, you know, and it's built up to be this big thing, I have found that that can be tough for me as opposed to something that's just like really touched on quite often and regularly. Yes. Oh gosh, I totally agree. And money is also, like I said, it touches every area of our lives, but it also is constantly changing. Like both of our incomes have gone up since we first started dating and that's affected how much he's been able to pay off his loans each month. It's affected how much I've been able to save. It's affected where we live. And so we have to be able to talk about it because when we're looking for housing and we know our rent budget has gone up like okay, well, let's just kind of follow that thread. Did you get a raise? Did I get a raise? Et cetera, et cetera. You know, I mean, the more we can be frank about it, I think the healthier communication we have and frankly, the more like trust we have because it is a little scary at first to kind of get financially naked with someone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. For the things that you split, I mean, you mentioned rent, you mentioned internet. Do you guys split things 50-50 or do you split things based on like a percentage of income, you know, depending upon who earns more? Yeah, great question. We do not do 50-50. We usually do about 60-40. And right now I'm the breadwinner, so I'm paying that 60. But previously he has been the breadwinner, and so he was paying that kind of 60%. But it's not an exact thing. We... I'm all about ease, and I love round numbers. So for example, our rent is 585 each. So I told him, hey, I'll pay your extra 85. So you're just paying... 500 bucks. Um, so then I'll just like Venmo you for $500 each month. So it's, it's little things like that, but then in a couple of different categories and it kind of evens out to about a 60, 40 right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm a, this, these are the kind of details. I mean, thank you for sharing this that I'm always really grateful when people talk about, because, uh, you know, for this and for everything else we're going to talk about, it's not like there's one right way to do things. And I think sometimes with money, like I think about in the past before I really started taking interest in personal finance and really empowering myself to learn about this kind of stuff, I had a lot of fear around, you know, there's one right right way to do it. And, you know, what if I don't find that way? Or other people know more about this than me. And, you know, it all just seemed this like daunting, huge thing. And then once I actually started digging into it to be like, all that matters is that I figure out something that works for me, especially with this type of stuff, right? With relationships, with cost sharing, if everyone involved feels good, there's no right or wrong way to do it. Yeah, exactly. I think this is something that really bothers me about the personal finance community at large is it's predominantly run by old white dudes and a a lot of straight people and a lot of heteronormative people. So a lot of the advice you'll see is if your marriage or your partnership isn't 100% combined finances, like you're an idiot and also your marriage is probably trash. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Like, first of all, back it up here. Um, You know, we have to have more room for nuance. We have to have more room for people who are doing things outside of the norm. I'm using air quotes there. And I think it's also really, really important to say just because that works for you doesn't mean it's necessarily going to work for me, but also maybe it won't work for me right now. And in five years, it will work for me 
money's fluid. Life is fluid. I'm not saying that the way that we're doing things here and now is the way that we'll do things when we're 45, but for right now, it's working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, having it being an evolving conversation that changes as your life circumstances change. And for me, I truly try to lean into curiosity a lot with money stuff. You know, if if I believe that, you know, you live together in finance or if you're married, that finances are supposed to look, you know, this way, why? Let's get interested in that. Like, is that just what was modeled to me? You know, is that what I was told? And like, just just to start to like peel back some of those layers. Yes. Oh, I love that. Asking why, getting curious about things and just kind of re-examining our own beliefs and expectations. It's really amazing how much once you start asking the question why, you realize you don't have a good answer, you know, and it's not in a judgmental way. You're just kind of like, oh, that's that's just how I thought it should be. But it can actually be anything. Cool. Let's go find the thing that works. Yeah. And, you know, I really like what you said about just because this is the way that we're doing it now doesn't mean it's the way that we're always going to do it. You learn through experimentation and you learn through your lived experiences, right? Like I was married and we had completely joint finances and it was the, I guess, like smoothest, easiest, most mutual, amicable divorce of all time. And it was still a logistical nightmare trying to like separate out all of the money, all that stuff. I mean, we had so many conversations of thank God that things are so good between us while we're doing all of this like logistical hellscape because I have so much compassion for folks who that is not the case because it was still just, I mean, we're still dealing with it. Like we can't get me off the mortgage. They like won't return our call. And like, it's fine because we're really great friends, but you know, there are definitely downsides to in, you know, intertwining your financial life with someone else. Oh my gosh. I think about this all the time because I'm someone who never really wanted to get married. In fact, when I was a teen, I was really anti-marriage, but now I love my partner so much. T-Bone's the best. I don't really want to get married simply because of the legal and logistical, um, like fallout sounds like a really intense word, but just like how you merge so completely. Once you get married, you really are seen as one combined entity. And you can get a prenup and some states ha- are you know, common property and some are not. But it's really, really difficult to walk away from a marriage or to try and change a marriage, legally speaking. So there's a couple other options, right? Like we could get a civil union, right? Or a domestic partnership. But then those don't come with a lot of the advantages that marriage has because there mm-hmm. are like tax advantages and stuff um, or even just kind of like visitation rights, you know, in the hospital and things. But I'm like, where is the marriage light? Where is the thing <laughs> that I can declare my love for this person, but I don't have to combine every single aspect of my legal and financial life with theirs because I'm just not comfortable with that. I'm It just doesn't appeal to me at all. And but there is no, there isn't, there is no marriage light. So uh, until we invent that, I'm just kind of stuck here. Yeah. So I want to stay on this thread of money and relationships a little bit. I know you mentioned your um, sort of, you know, financial come to Jesus moment. And later I want to talk about kind of your story and where you started, you know, learning about this kind of stuff. But since we're talking about money and relationships, I would love to ask how you handle talking to the close people in your life, whether it's friends, family. I mean, obviously we've talked about, you know, partnership, but friends and family specifically about money when it's a topic that often makes people uncomfortable. What specifically works for you and your relationships? Yeah. I talk about money all the time. Like I do it obviously professionally, but it's also a social conversation I'm always interested in having. And I can say that now I know what the majority of my friends make and what the majority of my friends are spending or how they're spending their money. 
And I do think generationally, millennials and Gen Z are more interested in talking about money than our parents or Gen Xers, because we're also beginning to have a social conversation about like, is it unethical to have a billion dollars, you know, or, hey, how come our tax system is doing X, Y, and Z and not doing A, B, and C? So that's something that I find really exciting. And honestly, you can use those social points as an entryway into a conversation that's a little more personal. You know, you can say like, oh, did you hear like Bill Gates has really been getting bashed in the news recently about his thoughts on taxes and like billionaires. Like, do you hear about that? And your friend can be like, oh yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you know, tell me more. I didn't hear about that or something, something. And you can kind of spiral it down to like, well, do you, do you budget? You know, like, do you have a tool that you're really into? And they might say yes or no. And then you can kind of go whatever direction you want to. But I think it's really important to also really make sure that people never feel threatened by <laughs> your questions because it is really easy to have a reactive response of like, oh, that's very rude or why would you bring that up? I'm uncomfortable or something like that. So I statements, I love a good I statement. You know, I'm really interested in this. I've been thinking about changing my approach to money. How do you handle money? I'm just looking for information. You can start really broad um, and then kind of suss the person out. Are they do they seem like they're interested in this conversation or do they look like they want to throw up, you know, <laughs> and don't press anyone, but kind of do um, a gentle digging into the topic of money with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I love the idea of just everyone being able to learn from each other. And, and I find as I've been having more of these conversations, folks have a lot of the same questions, right? So, okay, cool. Maybe we can research and find that out together. Or maybe someone has a question about something that I've already answered for myself or vice versa. And once you start kind of opening that door, it's really interesting. This has been coming up a lot um, in particularly one of my mastermind groups, which has been really great, just conversations around money and what are the questions that we have and what are the sticking points? What are the challenges? What works? What doesn't work? And just kind of like a resource share has been really interesting. I have this sort of secret, not so secret fantasy of, I don't know if it would be a live event or something, but I have this vision in my mind of, you know, let's get a group of people to sit around in a circle and just everyone answers the same question, right? Like, how much do you make? How much debt do you have? You know, like, where do you have shame around money? Like, just kind of round table of, you know, emotional neutrality, judgment-free, everyone answers the same question just to get a variety of responses. There's something about that that's very appealing to me. Oh my gosh. I was actually on a panel. This was maybe two years ago. We were talking about money and one of the panelists said, you know, why don't we just right here right now share how much money we make? And I was really taken aback, (laughs) excited, but really taken aback. And so we all shared, there were five panelists and the woman who earned the most earned 130 grand. And the woman who earned the least earned something like $43,000. And so it was just wild in this room of maybe 35 women talking about money to actually have numbers assigned to us as the panelists. And I'll share, I made 50 grand that year. Um, It was so powerful though. I thought it was really great. And even as someone who talks about money all the time, like I said, I was a little taken aback by her suggestion. And then I was like, hell yeah, let's get into this. So I really encourage you to do that someday. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I'm also, it's like on one hand, I'm really interested in like specifics, like numbers, right? You just mentioned like everyone going around and saying a number, but I'm also really interested in sort of the individual personal qualities of things. Like why do you spend like kind of like value spending and, you know, I, I 
spend, you know, more in this area because this is important to me, but I really don't spend it all in this other area, right? Just like how people's lifestyle choices kind of show up in their spending, what brings them joy, what doesn't, because I think like that kind of stuff is sometimes left out of the equation as well. Like what people need in order to like feel good and okay and joyful is not the same person to person. Yeah. A great question to ask someone is what do you love spending money on? Because I think money also too, we often think of it as like an unfortunate necessity where it's like, well, I have to pay my bills. I have to pay my student loans. Want, want, want. But when you ask someone, what's one thing that you've spent money on and felt, you know, joyous about, you can get such amazing answers. It might be I bought a flight to Costa Rica, or it might be, I just bought a book by my favorite author, or like, I just had the best scone of my life, you know, and it's really, it can run the gamut. And that's another really good entry point to talking about money is making it something worthy of celebration. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what do you really love and enjoy spending money on? Oh, great question there. So I'm not much of a person who goes out to eat. Like I hate sitting down in restaurants because I waited tables for three years right out of college. And I swear I have kind of a little bit of like a, like a traumatic, I can't be there anymore. But there's this amazing taco place in Austin called Torchies that does the best queso. So I, and I live within walking distance. So I would say probably like once or twice a month, I just walk up there and get myself some queso and I will bring a book and I will enjoy my queso by myself. And it feels like such a luxury. I don't bring my phone and I just bring a little bit of cash to pay for the queso. I sit by myself for about an hour. It's amazing. Mm, that sounds so good. Yeah, I also really love the thing that popped into my mind when you said that is the really fancy hot beverage, right? Where Whether it's mm. like the place here in town that does like amazing almond milk hot chocolate, right? Or one of those things that it's actually doesn't cost that much as far as dollars are concerned. But I always feel very joyful and like it's like this luxury to go and get this fancy beverage. Yeah. Oh, I also love a nice um, sparkling water, like a sparkling water that comes in a glass, uh, in a, not a glass, like a cup, like a glass bottle there. I was like, what's the word I need here? That some for some reason feels so luxurious to me as well, as opposed to a can or just like a plastic cup. I'm like, oh my God, look at me with my sparkling water in a glass bottle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if you listened. Um, I think it was a couple of months ago, the podcast Call Your Girlfriend did an episode about money that was really wonderful. And one of the questions that they posed to each other was, when do you feel rich or what makes you feel rich? And I thought that that was like a similarly interesting question. Uh, yes, I did listen to that. That's like one of my favorite podcasts. Same. And yeah, it's such a good question. It's also a really wonderful exercise in gratitude because you realize actually the things that I love about my life or that I'm very happy for and that make me feel rich are usually not like my first class flight to Bali. It's actually like being able to afford my favorite restaurant once a month or sleeping in really nice sheets, <laughs> like smaller things, you know? Mm -hmm. One of the things that came up for me when I was sort of reflecting and journaling on that question of what makes me feel rich was the ability to, if I see something that's like absolutely perfect for someone that I love, right? Whether it's a book or a sweater or, you know, whatever the thing is, I'm like, oh, this, you know, this person has to have this, being able to buy whatever that thing is without feeling a lot of financial panic around it, that always makes me feel rich. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I love that. Um, any other favorite kind of questions like this around money that you think prompt good discussion? Yes. If you are specifically interested in how much money somebody makes, don't ask them how much money do you make because people get really 
off put about that. But instead, ask them, like, can I ask you, do you make over or under X amount? Hmm. You know, do you make over or under 50 grand? I'm just really curious because, and you can say for whatever reason, I'm thinking about moving into that field or I don't understand how really money works, what have you. But over or under makes people feel a lot safer because um, it's not a specific number. And then if you're close enough or they're, they're comfortable enough, maybe you'll end up at the specific number, which is always really nice to have. Yeah. In the realm of talking about, you know, money with, with friends or family, have you had experiences where, you know, the conversation comes up and then either someone gets really defensive or there's shame present in the conversation that's hard to navigate? Oh yeah. I would say I argue with one of my Republican uncles about money every Christmas because (laughs) we have very different views on money in a socio-political sense, but also he's been a very high earner for a very long time. And he has very strict views around like who should be paid a lot. And I, I, we just very, very much so disagree on that. So the conversation often gets really uncomfortable and it happens every year. It's like clockwork. I don't know why we, (laughs) why we like continue to do this, but, um, that's always really hard to navigate because, you know, within my family, there's very much so an expectation that you will respect your elders. And I am now in this place when it comes to money and my socio-political beliefs that it's like, I am worthy of respect as well. Just because I'm younger than you and I'm your niece here doesn't mean that I have to kowtow to your beliefs. Mm-hmm. So there's this this odd power dynamic at play in that particular relationship. What I do now that we've had this argument for a few years is... I try and ask myself, what do I want out of this conversation? Why am I going back to this? Am I just doing this to pick a fight? Is it because arguing feels good, which I do love arguing? Um, Or am I actually trying to change minds? Am I actually trying to educate someone? Am I trying to be educated? I mean, what's the point here? So if you're going into a conversation that you know might be a little difficult, pull back and really ask yourself, what do I want from this conversation? Why am I doing this? And if the answer is, I just want to fight, maybe step back <laughs> and say, you know what? No, this isn't, this isn't worth my time or energy. Um, but if you know it's going to be difficult for maybe less antagonistic reasons, it's just might, might be more of a emotionally um, heavy conversation. I would say, try really hard to empathize with the other person. Why is it difficult for them? How are you going to come across to them by asking these questions? And then try and use that information to word your questions in a way that feels as safe for them as possible. So if you know you have to ask your mom about her retirement and you know she probably hasn't been saving that much money, don't go in being like, mom, how much money have you saved for retirement? Because she's probably going to feel like a failure with that kind of question. You might want to go in with something like, mom, I'm really curious to talk about, um, you know, money over the next couple of years for you. Like, what are you thinking? You know, and then Mm -hmm. that might, she might be like, oh, you know, I'm going to move down to part-time work, et cetera, et cetera. It'll open up a much safer conversation. Yeah. And, you know, give whoever you're talking to the chance to say what they want to say instead of necessarily feeling attacked. Mm -hmm. Tell me about a time when you had to navigate a friendship where you had very different incomes or money situations. Oh my gosh. I feel like this is my entire adult life (laughs) because to give some background on me. So I graduated college in 2011 and I had $25,302 in student loan debt and no job and no savings. Um, And 
2011 was very much so the aftermath of the recession. It was technically no longer the recession, but everyone was still like, we're not hiring and there's no money for anyone. So I waited tables for the first three years out of college and waitresses don't make very much money. Um, so I think I made something like $15,000 my first year, 16 and change my second. And then 2014, I made about $18,000. And that was the year I had my come to Jesus moment. But while I was making that $18,000, I was living here in Austin in a house with three friends. And it was this big, beautiful house you know, four bedrooms, two bathrooms. We had a giant backyard. Everyone had a parking space. And all three of the people I was living with came from much wealthier families than I came from. I come from a single parent household. We were on food stamps for about six years when I was a kid. And while my mother is now very financially stable and doing great, we had about a decade of, oh God, what's happening? Um, and that very much so shaped me and how I think about money. And so I'm, I'm living with these friends and they're able to do things that I cannot do. Like there's no two ways about it. It's not, let's just put it on a credit card and figure it out later. I can't even do that. They're able to travel. They're able to take jobs that pay $10 an hour because it's something they're interested in. Their parents are sending them money or giving them $500 when they go home for the weekend. And just none of that is true for my life. And so when I started getting really serious about learning about money, I then had to have a conversation not only with my partner, but with my friends about, hey, y'all, you know I have debt and it's actually really important for me to pay that off. So I can't go out to drinks this week or I can't go to the movie. And it was a lot of I can't do this. But I never felt bad in those conversations because it was I can't go out to drinks because I'm going to make a bigger debt payment. Like it wasn't, I can't do this because I'm a bad person or jealous of you or anything like that. It's because I'm doing this other really dope thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there's something to be said for when you know what your priority is, it's easier to say no to things that aren't that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How do you feel like I mean, and it sounds like, you know, maybe you didn't have that much FOMO about it, but, you know, in this situation specifically, do you feel like they were receptive to that? Were there changes that were made in terms of the activities that were suggested based on this? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was definitely some tension. I think my friends were very supportive, but I also think they were like, Kara's being a little intense. She could probably go out to this $12 meal, you know, we're not asking her to spend thousands of dollars on one meal. But because I was making so little, $12 felt like a lot. I mean, it was a lot. Um, and I was just very aware of the class differences. Like I could just see, oh, these people are the upper middle class and or frankly the 1% and I'm not. And so there was a little bit of tension there. And certainly I had moments where I felt lesser than. But I would say overall, it was actually a really happy, healthy household. And we were able to talk about money in a really, a really refreshing uh, way, which was great. Do you feel like from that point on, has anything changed in how you approach your friendships with money? Like potentially as you've started to earn more, maybe you're on the other side of the coin sometimes with certain friends. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm really interested in this because I think, you know, this in and of itself could be a two hour conversation, right? Like the, just understanding the financial dynamics with friends. And I, I think the friends thing is interesting because if it's, 
you know, let's say a roommate, obviously like that's potentially more intimate because you're sharing expense, more financially intimate because you're sharing kind of day-to-day expenses or same thing with, you know, maybe a romantic partner or someone that you're living with. Um, you tend to have more knowledge of each other's financial situation, but you can have friendships where you really don't know what's going on behind the curtain. And I think sometimes it can be, I don't know, um, easy to forget that that's the case or, um, you know, sometimes you can be kind of oblivious to, hey, this person might not be in the same situation as me one way or the other. And how can we, you know, make that something that feels good for everyone? Oh, yeah. I would say, you know, kind of like I said earlier, I know what most of my friends make. I know how a lot of people are spending their money because I make it a point to talk about money. And I in Austin, I run with this group of of female entrepreneurs. And a lot of us are more than happy to talk about money because we're building these businesses. So it's, oh, how much did you pay for that venue rental? Or what's your biggest marketing stream, you know, like your your best earning marketing tactic, um, which inherently leads to these conversations about money, which is really awesome. But in my non kind of business friend world, I get a lot of friends who come to me and say, hey, I had a, I had a question about my 401k. Can I ask you about it? And there's a lot of fear around it. I think in part because my friends want to be respectful of this is my business and I charge money for this <laughs> in a lot of cases. But I also think it's a, uh, well, I'm 33 and I should know, I should know what my 401k is and I don't and I have to ask you and I'm a little embarrassed around that. that. And I'm a very chatty person. I'm I'm pretty open about my own finances with everyone in my life. So I like to think that people feel comfortable coming to me because they know I'm not going to judge them. It's like, hey, this is an opportunity to learn. Let's get into it. Mm-hmm. And I think the more we can talk about money from that perspective, from everything, you know, the people coming to whomever, coming to your parents and saying, hey, I want to ask you a question instead of being like, oh, I'm, I'm nervous about it. I have to ask my mom how to do my taxes to be like, my mom can teach me how to do my taxes. This is really exciting. <laughs> yeah, to embrace learning about stuff. I feel like the thing that you touched on before, the like I should, right, in quotes, like I should already know this, right? What's wrong with me that I don't already know this? Uh, I'm an adult and it seems like part of being a real adult is that everyone knows how to do this except I don't. I think there's something in that space that's like universally relatable, right? Like unless you grew up with a phenomenal financial education, which I certainly did not. You know, if you have parents or you know, whoever raised you what was not that if they weren't, you know, financially literate, if they, you know, made a lot of mistakes, if, you know, the things that they taught you are things that you wouldn't necessarily want to repeat, which is certainly my story. And then especially for someone like me who has never worked, um, like a, I guess like traditional job or like something where a 401k was an option, or there's an HR department to teach you things, or there's a financial seminar, any of that kind of stuff. It can feel really isolating of, okay, here's this world of money stuff. And, you know, how do I, get started. And I think that that's something that a lot of people feel, not necessarily that you have to be self-employed, but I think that it can feel like, here's all this money knowledge and it's like floating around up there. And like, what's wrong with me that I don't have this knowledge yet? Oh my gosh, totally agree. And also I've never had a job where a 401k was an option. I've never had a, a real job or a traditional job, right? I've always been, I've always worked in the food service industry or I've been a contractor or a freelancer. And now Yes, I have my own LLC, so I'm like a registered business, but I don't have a 401k. <laughs> you know, I mean, I have a solo 401k, which I'm happy to talk about as well. But yeah, I completely agree. There is this kind of like 
I think of it as kind of a vortex of money and it's, it's not like spinning rapidly and really scary, but it's just kind of all these phrases or these accounts that we have a passing familiarity with. Like, well, we know a 401k has something to do with investing in retirement, but we're not clear on how exactly it works. Right. Or we know debt is bad, but we're not really sure like what debt payoff strategies make the most sense. And at the same time, life is continuing on. Maybe you're getting a raise or you buy a house or you see your friends doing something. So you're like, okay, people are managing money. I'm managing my money, but I'm just not hyper clear on it. And it is so easy to fall into this shame spiral or this, this negative mindset of I'm the problem. But in fact, if we zoom out, the problem is that we don't have financial education in most schools in the United States. And we live in a culture that thinks of talking as money as a taboo and it's rude and we shouldn't do it. We also live in a very unequal society. So people with a lot of money don't want to talk about it because they on some level know like it's a little messed up that I have so much and you have so little. Mm -hmm. And whether or not they feel guilty about that, that's, it's not about assigning guilt. It's just saying like, I know this is unequal and it's uncomfortable to point out how unequal this is. Yeah, yeah. So going back in time a little bit, what changed for you personally in 2014 that made you think, okay, I'm going to start you know, becoming you know, more knowledgeable about this? I would love to hear that. And I'd love to hear what your first few steps were. Yeah, in 2014. So I started the year working at a catering company for $12 an hour. And I was working at an MMA gym as a receptionist for $9 an hour. And then I was working as a lacrosse coach at a high school. And that was a like $5,000 stipend for three months. And when the lacrosse gig ended, it was May. And I realized, okay, now I have my catering and my um, MMA gym. And that's it. And I don't really know how I'm going to be paying my bills moving forward. I had about $1,000 in savings and was like, oh my God, when this runs out, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like I have reached the end of the road and it was overwhelming in the worst sense. I just felt trapped and scared and very much so ashamed. And I felt really resentful of my college degree because my debt was by far my biggest bill each month. And it just kept coming. And I was like, I'm such an idiot for going to college. I'm not even using my degree. This is so stupid. It's so expensive. Everything feels unfair. I feel like a fool because I can't get it together. What is wrong with me? Like, what is wrong with me that I can't figure this out? And what is wrong with me that no one wants to hire me? Because still I was applying for jobs and I just wasn't getting them. And so I had my quarter life crisis. I like to call it the summer of 2014, crying in cars 2014, because I would just get in my Kia Rio and like weep. I mean, weep. It was like kind of dangerous because I was crying so hard. It was difficult to see. Um, but I would just, I would cry about how sad I felt, about how overwhelmed I felt, about how negative I felt. And I just realized after about a month of doing that, like, this cannot continue. And guess what? No one's going to ride in on a white horse and save me. I can't ask my mom for money. She doesn't really have any to give. I can't not pay my bills. That's not how this works. Like I need to figure this out. And the number one thing for me that I thought about every day and I just hated and I resented was my debt. So I Googled how to pay off student loans faster and fell into this world of personal finance blogs. There was a lot of people on the internet talking about money from a very personal point of view, just like, here's my story, here's what we're doing. And the stories were really remarkable. People paying off 
30, 40, 50 grand in debt, people buying houses in cash, people really making it work on way more money than I had, but not insane amounts of money. Um, there are plenty of stories of high income earners, people making, you know, a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars a year, and they're like, I'm able to save 70% of my income. And it's like, yeah, if I had 300 grand a year too, I could do that. But I found a lot of stories of people making 50, 60, 70 grand a year and doing things like paying off a hundred grand in debt. And I was like, yeah, you know what? If these people can do it, I can do it. Like I don't have very much money, but I have just enough in my budget that I could squeeze out an extra 50 bucks and make an extra payment on my debt. What would that feel like? And so I paid off my last $18,000 in student loans in a 10-month sprint, and I it was the worst and the best thing that I've ever done. I mean, it was the hardest thing I've ever done for sure because I started picking up any job that would pay me. At one point, I was working five different part-time jobs seven days a week to be able to pay off my debt, and everything went to my debt. I cut down to the bare bones expenses. I mean, it was rent. It was food. It wasn't even gas. I stopped I basically stopped driving my car as much as possible because gas was too expensive. I was like, I can walk, I can bike, I can carpool. This is fine. I remember once I had a pair of uh, Forever 21 leggings, which are like $2, and they ripped on a seam and I sewed them up because I was like, I'm not spending $2 on these leggings. That's insane. <laughs> um, and going through that experience, just picking up all the work that I could, asking for my raise for the first time at the catering company, it taught me so much about money management and it also taught me so much about what I'm capable of. Mm -hmm. Like if I want something, I am a hundred percent capable of getting it. And I proved that to myself through my debt payoff journey. And then from there, once I was debt free, it opens up this whole other world of money to you. Like my next kind of quest became investing. I don't know anything about investing, but it seems like something people with money do like, let's figure that out. Um, how do I get even more money via negotiation? Do I need to revamp my budget, et cetera, et cetera? So everything just kind of snowballed one after another. Yeah, I felt very similarly um, about my student loans when you were saying, you know, you graduated, you had all this debt. What's wrong with me that I went to college? I'm not even using this degree. Like that literally could have been lifted right out of my brain. <laughs> I feel, oh. you know, when, when people ask you the you know, what's your biggest regret? Or if you could go back, you know, what's one thing that you would definitely do differently? Like one of my, you know, constant answers is that I personally wouldn't have gone to college, or at least I wouldn't have gone, you know, the path that I did. And obviously that is only helpful in retrospect, knowing that I chose not to work in that <laughs> industry, right? And that type of stuff. But yeah, I went to quite an excitement to NYU and even, you know, with scholarships and graduating a year early, I had just over $50,000 in debt when I graduated. And I was like, how did somebody let me do this at, you know, 17 and a half, 18 years old? You know, it just seemed like such fake money that I was signing on the dotted line for. And I had a lot of rage, honestly, about that for years until I paid it off. Oh yeah. I had so much rage and I, I, yeah, obviously feel similarly. I went, my degrees in English, I studied critical race theory and I just hated myself for so long for, for doing that and getting that degree. Though I will say on the flip side, now that I've been debt free and I'm doing work that I really love, I'm actually really glad I went to college and I think it helped shape me into the person I am today in some really fundamental ways. But Holy smokes. I mean, that's part of the reason I moved to Texas. I went to college in Connecticut. I went to Wesleyan University. And I just I could not be anywhere near Wesleyan graduates when 
I graduated, I was like, I can't talk about college. I don't want to be reminded about it. I This was the worst mistake of my life. I'm going to move to the middle of Texas where I don't know anyone and no one will know me and my story. And like, hopefully I can start over basically. Yeah, that's so relatable. And it makes me want to ask you, you know, it sounds like you have a different perspective on, you know, the choice to go to college. Obviously, we're just using that as an example right now. Um, It sounds like you have a different perspective now. But what either using that example or something else has been helpful for you to like in forgiving yourself for what you view as past money mistakes? Because I feel like there's, you know, probably everyone can relate to this. There's something that you're like, if only I wouldn't have X, right? Or, oh, I really put myself in a bad situation because I chose to do Y. And that kind of story can just cycle in your head and cycle in your head. And, you know, I've been really awful to myself about stuff like that. And, you know, I know I'm not alone in that. And I'm interested to hear if there's anything for you personally that's helped with that. Ooh, yeah, that's such a good question. And I don't exactly have a cookie-cutter answer, but So I used to be a very big journaler. I would journal every night for a very long time. And then a couple times a week, I no longer do it. It's really fallen off. But I love journaling because I like looking back at where I was. And the journal entries from 2014, 2015 are so full of fear. They're so full of sadness and a lot of rage, to use your word, but also just a lot of I'm a piece of shit and everyone can see it and I can see it and this is terrible. And knowing where I'm at now, I just want to go back and hug myself and say, you know, like, it's going to be so hard, but it is going to be okay. So I think building that compassion, when you're kind of in the struggle, if it's at all possible to kind of zoom out and say, my life hasn't always been this terrible. (laughs) And like, um, I haven't always felt so negatively about myself. I will feel positively about myself again at some point. Um, you don't have to have a timeline on that and you don't have to know what that looks like. You just have to know it will be different. Like this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. Nothing is forever. I would also say really taking, so like I've spent a bunch of time in therapy which has been very helpful for me of just embracing the truth of a situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because sometimes you just have to know, like, I made a mistake. And also sometimes you have to know, I am in no way at fault for this. Like, 18-year-old me didn't know. No one around me gave me information. My mom encouraged me to take out student loans. And her literal advice, this is so, like, okay, boomer. But she was just like, well, you'll get a job and pay them back. Like, that's how it works. And then the Great Recession happened and it shifted our entire world. We will never again live in a world like we lived in in 2007. I mean, the recession changed everything. It changed how we work, how we pay people, everything. I'm not at fault for that. Mm -hmm. I am trying to swim in this ocean that appeared out of nowhere. And so again, saying like, I'm going to take ownership of certain things and I'm not going to take ownership of certain things because I can't carry that burden. All that burden is doing is weighing me down. So just putting it on the ground and walking the fuck away, I think is really helpful. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's so much in that, that I feel, you know, personally very comforted by and this idea, kind of, you were talking about compassion and I don't know, like 
I feel like shame is not an effective motivator. Like I've tried, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it doesn't work. And with this specifically, like the topic of money mistakes and, and all of that, I've been thinking, I relate, you know, to everything that you just said. And a couple of things that have helped me that I will share is really just the reminder of, I did the best I could with what I had at the time, whether that was the knowledge or like you said, the encouragement from people around you and like so much we are so much a product of our environment. Like if I go back to who I was at like 16, 17, 18, I went to high school at a school where, you know, it was take as many AP classes as you can, go to the absolute best school that you get into, no matter how much it costs. Like there was, it was really looked down upon to go to community college or to do, you know, some kind of trade or something else. And there was a lot of just cultural judgment around that. There were no other options that were presented to me, right? So Of course, I didn't think through other things. It was, hey, this is the top school that I got into, so I'm supposed to go there, and it's a good investment in my future to take out all of this money. And so I have to remind myself, like, I know more now than I did then, but I did the best that I could with what I had. And, you know, I also think, and I'm interested to hear your opinion about this, with money stuff – I think almost everything is more complicated than we think that it is or more layered than we think that it is. You know, like specifically the choice to go to college. I had a really unhappy family situation when I was in high school and I was living in California at the time. And the thought of getting to go to school across the country, like all I wanted to do was get out of there. Like, let me get as far away as I can from this situation. And so the opportunity to go to school in New York, I jumped at that for very emotional reasons. Like sometimes we go into debt or we make, you know, the choices that we make because that's what we need to do to be okay. Oh my gosh. Yes. I can also relate to so many things you just said. Uh, I also, I mean, God bless my mom. She had a really difficult situation, but there were some years growing up that I was deeply unhappy and I wanted nothing more than to get away from my house when I was 18. Like that was my number one goal was just to get out. So getting accepted to my first choice college, I was like, hell yeah, I'll do anything I need to to make this a reality. And I did get a scholarship. I mean, I had a bunch of my college paid for, but also I knew I was going to have to take out these loans and that just seemed like, yep, of course, got to do it. And again, when we when we step back and say like the world changed and that's not my fault, you know, or... I did what was a healthy choice for 18-year-old Kara. Turns out it wasn't such a healthy choice for 25-year-old Kara, but I couldn't have known that. And mm-hmm. I'm just going to go ahead and say, like, fine. And also, like, yeah, I used to feel really angry at going to college, and now I don't. And I am able to see what I'm grateful for and how much good it has brought to my life. So also understanding, again, like, this too shall pass, the the rage that I've I've felt and Maybe again in the future, I'll be mad about going to college. I don't know. But um, just understanding that nothing is permanent and that nothing we do is permanent. So the decisions we make now are the decisions we're making with the information we have at hand. And I'm smarter and wiser than I was at 25. But guess what? 35-year-old Kara, I'm 31 right now, is going to be smarter and wiser than me. And I'm just going to have to let any decisions I feel bad about go and move on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So talking um a little bit more about your your work now obviously you own a business that's in the you know financial education industry but it's still a business that you had to start on your own the same way that I started my small business or you know other people start theirs whether it's a full-time thing or a side hustle you know regardless of the industry can you share where you got the money to start your business and kind of tell us your startup story from that perspective Yes, I started my business with $3,300 that 2500 of I got 
from the sale of an old blog. So when I was just paying off my student loans, I was chronicling what it was like to be a really low income earner trying to get out of debt. And, um, I sold that blog for $2,500. So actually it was after taxes. Um, it was about $2,200. And then the remainder of the money came from my catering side hustle. I saved every single penny I made from catering for about three months and ended up in December 2016 with $3,300. And I just said, you know what? If I'm going to do this, it has to be now. I can't wait till I have more. I can't wait till I know more. I just have to do it. And so I got my LLC by myself um, for $308. You can do it online in the state of Texas. And I hosted my first event um, in January like 10th or something, 2017. And we were just kind of off to the races <laughs> ever since. Yeah, I love hearing about the start of things, you know, especially for businesses that primarily operate online. I think, and this is funny when I, I posted on the um, podcast Instagram account, you know, of, hey, you know, share your money questions. I'm going to be doing this series of episodes. A couple of folks, you know, asked questions that were upvoted quite a bit about, you know, specifically like, coaches or wellness people or, you know, just people who work online, right? The like, is this actually your full-time job? Like, does it make enough to live like the lifestyle of the pictures that you're posting? Is it, mm. are, is it debt? Is it, you know, family money? Is it a partner? And like, not that there's each, you know, all options are fine, right? It's not like there's only one way to have like a morally good <laughs> business, right? If you're not doing terrible things to people, obviously. But um, I do think that there's a lot of questions that people have about that. Like, is, is this really, you know, where all of your money comes from? Oh, yeah. I have a lot of those questions, too. And <laughs> I will say I know a lot of these people are portraying one view of their business. And people aren't really talking about the fact that their partners support them or they have family money. And again, that's fine. But we we here in the United States seem to think that if we talk about the help we've accepted, it diminishes our own accomplishments. Or if we talk about the privileges we have, it diminishes our own accomplishments. So I always like to say, you know, you could look at my money story and easily say, this is the ultimate bootstrap. I mean, this girl worked five different jobs, seven days a week. She went from earning $18,000 a year to earning $50,000 a year all on her own, et cetera, et cetera. You could say she started her business with $3,300 and today she is the breadwinner in her relationship. She works full-time for herself. But on the flip side, let's let's look at some of the help I had along the way. You know, like my first event, I got the space donated for free. I got the food and the wine donated for free. So I didn't have to go out of pocket for that event. That was hugely helpful. I am white. I speak English. I am like a cute, small, thin lady. You know, all of those things help. Um, I don't share any money with my partner, like we talked about. So he has never like paid rent while I hustle on my own. I've always had to pay my own bills, but I also work really hard at keeping my bills low. I don't own property because I don't think that a mortgage on my budget right now makes any kind of sense, you know? So all of these things are true at the same time. And I wish more people would say, yeah, you know what? My parents gave me 15 grand to pursue my dreams. And then I turned that 15 grand into 80 grand because of my hard work, you know, but it's no judgment. It's no shame. It's just very different when you're trying to portray yourself as like, I did this all on my own. And you actually have had help, particularly financial help. 
because now it seems like the person who is working three part-time jobs and has 30 grand in student loans should be able to do exactly what you're doing, but they can't because they don't have the same resources you do. Yeah. Just acknowledge that and be upfront about it. Yeah. I also, I mean, this comes up a lot, um, you know, in the realm of the self-employed, like creative self-employment, right? That one of the things that I think is not talked about enough is like, what are people doing about health insurance, right? Like if you have mm-hmm. a chronic illness that's, you know, quite expensive to manage, like things, it's potentially not an option, right? Like to do something like what I'm doing or what you're doing or like just, and not to say that it's not possible. Of course it is, you know, anything maybe is possible, but just this idea of like it not being talked about, right? It's not just enough to be like, leap and the net will appear, <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, I'm on the ACA. So that's just uh, what I do for healthcare. I've got Oscar. But yeah. Oh my gosh. My One of my best friends has a chronic illness and she flat out told me like, I will never be an entrepreneur. I could die. Like <laughs> if I can't get the medication that I need because of like some shitty freelancer healthcare plan, like I will die. So I have to work in corporate America so that I not only get really good um, health insurance, but that I have a high income so I can save for future health emergencies. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, yeah, that's really real. Yeah. I mean, one of the, um, obviously my financial situation has changed considerably since getting divorced, right? Like my former spouse earns a lot more money than I do, at least than I do right now. And we were in a completely different situation than I am now on my own. And I mean, that's fine. And that's what happens. But, you know, logistically, the most impactful thing of it was no longer being on his amazing corporate insurance. Like that's the best insurance I've ever had in my life, you know, as someone who's been self-employed and has had basically the, in case I get hit by a bus insurance, right? And mm-hmm. um, having to get insurance on my own and, you know, what I can afford, not only what I can afford, but what's even available to me. I don't even have options that are, you know, as good as obviously like what he has and stuff that's subsidized. And, you know, it's it's something that I think about a lot. And, you know, if my health were to change, I think that would change the feasibility of me doing this business. Oh yeah, totally. I think about that a lot. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm very healthy, I'm very lucky and blessed, knock on wood, but should something change, my business would have to change in a really big way. Yeah, I was thinking um my uh doctor, my gynecologist is like 99% sure that I have endometriosis. We've been talking about it for a couple of years and you know, my symptoms have gotten progressively worse and talking about regrets, I'm like kicking myself that I didn't have the surgery a couple of years ago. You know, I thought, mm-hmm. eh, it's not that bad yet. I can just wait." And now that's not really an option for me. I mean, I guess, you know, obviously if you need something, you make it work, but it's something that I'm thinking, "Man, I should have done that when I had good insurance," which is I mean, the system is so fucked, right? That we even are having this conversation. I know. Uh, gosh, I just released an investing course. So it kind of just walks you through the basics of investing and creating your own investing plan. And we talk about what's the number you need for retirement. And in the course, I'm like, healthcare, it's a big who the fuck knows. <laughs> like, It's so impossible to plan for our healthcare in retirement because especially right now, as we head into an election year in the United States, like, Healthcare is constantly being talked about, and there are all these little changes that are always being enacted, but people are talking about these broad, sweeping changes. And we could have a very different healthcare system in five years, let alone in the 50 years that could elapse between a 20 a 20 year old right now heading into retirement. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it's a wild ride out here. Yeah. So um the last thing that I want to ask you before we kind of switch gears into some community money questions that um 
people have asked, which I'm very excited about. You're one of the few personal finance bloggers and speakers that uh, seems to acknowledge the effect, you know, of the world and its systems and its politics. And obviously we've been talking about that throughout this conversation, the effect that those things have on our money. And I completely agree with you on that, that it's silly to pretend that things like our race and gender and the places that we live don't impact our money because obviously they do. And I would love um, for you to talk about that a little bit about sort of systemic challenges versus personal responsibility and how we deal with the realities of that as individuals in an often broken system. Yeah, it's something that the personal finance community seems very reluctant to talk about, and it drives me nuts. <laughs> it drives me up a wall. Like I said earlier, a lot of the traditional advice really only applies to heteronormative white couples, and that just really leaves a lot of people out in the dust. And like a lot of advice around, especially how to like create more income. One of the most common pieces of advice you'll see is like rent out a room in your house. And it's like, okay, well, what if I don't own a house? So now I'm probably breaking my lease by trying to rent it out. Or what if I live in an intergenerational house and my abuela is in the extra bedroom, you know, (laughs) like that piece of advice doesn't apply to me. What else you got? And if you don't have anything else, you're a really bad personal finance expert, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, and when you bring this up to people, they will just be very like, well, they need to figure it out. You know, like there's something you can do. And it's like, well, help me, guide me, give me something else. So this this idea of intersectional finances is something that is newer to the personal finance community. And more and more people are talking about it, which I'm grateful for. But We have to acknowledge privilege. We have to acknowledge gender. We have to acknowledge race. We live in a world where Latinas make 54 cents to the dollar of a white dude. That's insane. That is essentially half. So now that is going to play out for the rest of these Latinas' lives. They're going to be able to save less, invest less, because they have less to work with. So now we have to talk about, well, how do we pay people more? How do we pay people equally? How do we talk about the fact that when more women enter a field, pay goes down? Because fundamentally, we devalue the labor that women are doing. You know, we have to talk about this when we talk about money. Otherwise, we're being dishonest and we're not really helping anyone move the needle. So that's, I just feel really strongly about it. <laughs> and I think Again, the more we can discuss it in non-judgmental terms, but just these are the facts of the matter. How do we work with the facts to make sure that everyone is being taken care of, not just the high earners of the world? The more I think that we change the world and the more I think we live truthful lives. Mm -hmm. Are there any folks who you feel like are talking about this well that you want to recommend that we check out their work? Yes, I will. This is a little bit of a self-plug, but I have my own podcast um, that I do with a co-host. It's called The Fairer Sense, C-E-N-T-S. And we talk about intersectional uh, money all the time. We just did an episode on the wellness industry and specifically yoga and weight loss and how that intersects with our money. But some other folks that I'm not related to or I'm not in the the project with, one of my friends, her name is Amanda Holden. Um, She has a blog called dumpsterdoggy.com. And um, she talks a lot about investing, which is really cool. But she also just writes about things like how sexual assaults impact money. Um, And then my other friends, their blog is called Bitches Get Riches, which is great. Um, And it's a duo. So they produce a ton of content um, covering everything from privilege to gender identity, things like that. Yeah. 
awesome. I'm going to put links to all that in the show notes. We've already covered so much good stuff. I'm so grateful for your honesty. We are going to pivot into some money questions that were submitted from the community, from Instagram, from my mastermind groups, um, that kind of stuff. Obviously, we can't get to everything, but I figure we'll just kind of dive in. I'll keep the questions anonymous and you can offer either, you know, personal stories that relate to it or any potential starting points. I love the idea of sharing, hey, here's like a first step to go, you know, to potentially make this less overwhelming. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So the first one, I'm just going to read it says, so I'm supposed to be saving money for retirement, emergencies, possible unemployment, also fun, also treating myself. What the (laughs) heck? This leads to questions like, how do I decide how many dollars to save for the possible future? Just however much that I can live without right now, because retirement generally seems impossible and I'm already almost 40. So I don't feel like I have a ton of time to save these dollars and I don't know what to do and where to start. Ooh, great question. Question I get all the time. And luckily, there's actually a pretty simple answer. First and foremost, you got to have what we call an emergency fund or a fuck you fund or an oh shit fund. But this is for when your car breaks down on the highway or when your landlord kicks you out and you need to find a new place to live ASAP. And there's a formula for it. So when you're concerned about, you know, how many dollars do you need? Easy formula, add up all your necessary monthly expenses. So that's rent, healthcare, childcare, groceries, gas, or you know your public transportation pass. It's not things like Netflix or restaurants or gifts, only the things that like keep you alive and keep you getting to work. And then multiply that by three. So now you've got a number that will show you, okay, here's what I can live off of, kind of like a bare bones living situation for three months. That's how much you should have at a minimum in your emergency fund. Once you have that, especially if you are older than 35, um, we definitely want to be investing. So that's where you should be focusing kind of the next biggest chunk of your dollars, um, because women are more likely than men to retire into poverty. We're about 35% more likely than men to retire into poverty. We live longer than men, so we need more money into our retirement. Um, it's just a whole hot mess. So first things first, focus on that uh, focus on that emergency fund. And then if you have a workplace-sponsored investment plan, like a 401k or a 403b or something like that, take advantage of it. And then outside of that, save for the things you love, travel, gifts, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to think about it as like putting your own oxygen mask on first, because if you don't have anything saved for retirement, are you going to be your children's problem? Are you going to be your parents' problem? Like what does you not taking um, action in your own financial life look like for the people around you and look like for yourself? Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's dig into the investing a little bit because I think, you know, I, I relate a lot to when you were sharing from your own story from 2014 of, okay, paying off the debt and then, oh, investing, that's a thing people do. I feel like even the word investing can be overwhelming for folks, right? Mm-hmm. Like it certainly was to me, especially because it's, I think this is an area where there's a lot of knowledge gap and there can be a lot of fear of doing the wrong thing, right? So the next question, relates exactly to this. Um, And it says, what do I do with the dollars I'm saving? I know that just using my savings account is probably silly, but the idea of not having access to my money or the stock market tanking and my dollars just evaporating seems so scary. Oh my gosh. Yes. This is the number one reason that women don't invest. Actually, it's because we are afraid and because we had to work so damn hard to save that money that we don't want to put $1,000, $5,000 into an account and watch it disappear because we're like, what the hell? Um, but again, kind of like 
reverse engineer this a little bit. The money sitting in your savings account has an interest rate, right? If you log on to your bank account, you're going to see like, I'm earning 0.001% interest. Maybe if you're lucky, you're earning 2% interest. The fun fact about the uh, stock market is that historically it's returned at 10% interest. Now, I'm not promising you you're going to get 10% interest every year from now until you die in the stock market. Recessions happen, crashes happen. You will probably lose some money at some point in the market. But historically, it comes back. I've lost money in the market. It comes back. So you have to say, am I willing to let this money sit in this savings account because it gives me, you know, it makes me feel safer knowing it's losing value due to inflation and I'm not really looking out for my future self? Or am I willing to do a little digging, figure out what I don't know about investing, go find resources like me that can educate you about investing and then make a plan to feel in control of my money, even though I'm putting it into the stock market, which has scared me a little bit. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you were obviously so generous before about sharing, you know, this is how much money I made this year. This is how much money I had to, you know, start my business. Would you be comfortable sharing what you personally do when it comes to investing? Like, where do you invest? Not that you're telling everyone that this is what they have to do, but I'm curious what you do. Oh, yeah, for sure. So the first investing account that I ever opened was a Roth IRA, which sounds a little weird and frankly dry, but IRA stands for Individual Retirement Account. Anyone over 18 who has a job can open one. So it's not linked to your employer specifically. You just have to have income coming in. Um, Like a 401k is specifically at your employer, but an IRA the government's like, hey, open this up. It's totally fine. Do you have a job? Cool. Um, so I really recommend people start with that, especially if you're a lower income earner. If you're making less than 100 grand a year, open a Roth. The maximum amount you can put in it each year is $6,000, which I really, I do that every year. I strive to do that um, and I encourage you to, but if you can only put $1,000 in, great. That's still frigging awesome and you should be really proud of yourself and future you thanks you. So start with a Roth. From there, there's a bunch of other IRAs, like there's something called a SEP IRA, which is specifically for self-employed people. So it's really going to depend on what what your professional situation is. Are you partially employed? Are you working at Corporation X? Are you self-employed? I don't know that, but start with a Roth. And if you have access to a retirement workplace plan like a 403B or a 401k, take advantage of that too. Yeah. So one more level of specificity I'm going to ask, because I feel like the Mm follow-up question would be, okay, but where do I actually do that? That's hopefully not going to charge me like an exorbitant amount of fees, if that's someone's follow-up question. Yes. So yeah, there's a the companies that you invest through are called brokerages. And there's a bajillion out there, like Fidelity is a brokerage, Charles Schwab is a brokerage, JP Morgan Chase, right? Like we know all the names. Um, I like Vanguard and Fidelity. I do my investing at Vanguard. Me too. They have some of the lowest fees. Ah, yes, great. Uh, they have some of the lowest fees in the industry and they pioneered something called an index fund, which is one of the cheapest ways of investing. It's also um, one of the most passive ways of investing. So if you're just kind of like, I want to put my money in something and then and kind of forget about it for a while. Index funds are the name of the game for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly what I do. So yep. Yep. Um, okay. Uh, the next question, it's funny. These are like all going in order. Um, the next question <laughs> asks, it seems helpful to pay a person to help me with my money, but how do I trust them? 
Oh, that's an amazing question. So the first thing you should ask is what's your fee? If you're like, I'm a money coach, I am not licensed by any body out there. So definitely chickity check anybody who's using the word coach. Cause a lot of people are like, Oh, well I'm, I'm like a whatever coach. And it's like, well, what's, what are your, what are your qualifications to help me with my money? I stand by my qualifications, but definitely ask that. But if you're hiring someone who's like a CFP, which stands for certified financial planner or a financial advisor, ask what their fees are. There's a word that sounds really weird, but is very important. It's fiduciary. So a fiduciary is a person or a company that has been certified and they say, I have to act in your best interest. I have to act in my client's best interest. There's other financial advisors who are non-fiduciaries who do not have to act in your best interest, which you might think, oh, like, but they will. No, they won't. <laughs> They'll put your money in funds and accounts where they get a kickback or that have really high fees because they get paid off of the fees. Mm -hmm. So you want to look for a fiduciary. You want to understand how they're getting paid and how much you're paying them. Um, and kind of why their rates are set that way. Like, what are you getting in return for that? And then you're looking for someone that you vibe with, frankly. Like, it's kind of like going on a date. If you are a woman and you want to work with a woman, great. If you're a person of color, you want to work with a person of color, great. Because they're going to understand your situation better, right? So sit down, ask yourself, what am I looking for? What are the, my biggest issues with money that I want guidance on? Is it my investment plan? Is it my debt payoff plan? Um, and how, how do I want to be treated? You know, do I want to be communicating with this person only online? Do I want to be able to see them in person? What are the things that are really important to me around my money? Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are all such good questions. Um, side question that doesn't have anything to do with that, but just popped into my mind. Um, what's your personal kind of budgeting system? Are there tools that you like or what do you do when it comes to budgeting? Okay. I love budgeting. I am like a budgeting stan so hard. Yeah, um, same. You, I mean, clearly me, you and I have a lot yeah. of these things in common. Yes. <laughs> Budgeting is great. It has a bad reputation, but it's awesome. I like really enjoy seeing where all the money goes. I color coordinate my spreadsheets. It's great. Um, so I use a bunch of customized spreadsheets that I've created for myself because I like to manually enter things. That makes me feel really in control. I can see where everything is and it helps me take ownership of when I've overspent somewhere, but it also helps me take ownership of when I've done really well. Like, oh, I put $1,000 into investments this month. That's right. I am a badass. You're welcome. <laughs> so I like that. A lot of people don't, though. They're just looking for an app. Um, I've never used this app, but I hear pretty rave reviews about it. It's very intensive, so you got to be ready for that. It's called You Need a Budget. That's what I use. Or, yeah, YNAB for those in the know. Um, again, I don't have any personal experience with it, but people seem to be like rabid fans. So but if you're looking for more of kind of an app rather than manual um, finances, I would go with YNAB. But... Um, on my website, which is bravelygo.co, I have a very basic spreadsheet to kind of just like kick things off for you. It's a free download. You can go grab that. And I have one for business as well. If you're a business babe and you need a little help managing those finances, just to get you started and to help you understand what should I be looking for in my budget and what costs do I need to account for? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I use YNAB personally, but I, they, 
have an option, at least I don't use it on my phone. I use like the desktop app version or the, like, the mm-hmm. web app um, where you can have it not link to your bank account. So you can still do it manually. Cause I'm like you, I like to actually enter, like enter everything in like one thing at a time. Um, so it does, you can have it pull the data automatically, but I have that turned off. Oh, great. Good to know. Which is nice. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's see. Next person's question. Um, I love this question so much. Um, she asks, I'm very curious how we figure out what enough is in terms of money. What does enough look like for you? How do you know when you have enough? Oh my gosh, this is an amazing question. It's like the question, right? I think about this. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I think about this all the time. I feel like enough can very easily become a never ending, um, moving and what am I trying to say? Like the goalpost is constantly moving. Um, if we let it, something I like to do is check in with myself and think, what would 16 year old Kara do? Um, and I do this a lot in kind of all areas of my life. Cause 16 year old Kara was full of, full of rage in a way that I really liked about myself. And I was also very clear about what I wanted from the world. Um, so I would ask yourself, what was success to me five years ago? And what is success to me now? Have those changed? Are they focused on items or is it more of an experiential thing? Is it more of a feeling? No right, right or wrong answer in that. It's just what it is. Um, start there and then ask yourself, what is the cost of success to me? Like, is success to me literally having a million dollars in the bank? Cool. Now we know what that is and we know exactly how much you need to have to feel successful? Or is it like success and comfort and enough feels like being able to take a Friday off for a long weekend with my family? And from there, you'll be able to say, okay, if I want that kind of flexibility, I know that I'm going to need to be in this kind of position, et cetera, et cetera. And then the numbers will kind of come from there. In general, though, as kind of the money experts, I would say, for millennials and Gen Z due to inflation and due to rising cost of living, when it comes to thinking about your retirement, you should be aiming for like 1.5 million in your retirement, which I know sounds like an insane amount of money, but it's really not if you harness the power of investing and saving early on. Um, Investing is great because investing makes your money go to work for you, which is fantastic. Um, and it's just because the world is getting more expensive. We just need to save a little bit more. Yeah. I think this question of enoughness, the reason that I think it's such a good question is because there is no answer, right? And kind of what you just laid out are some great questions that folks can ask themselves to figure that out. But I think a lot about the morality that we place around money. Like when you were talking earlier about um, calculating how much an emergency fund would be, right? Like that makes a lot of sense. What's, you know, because in an emergency, right? Like as the name implies, that you would probably be going down to more of a bare minimum type thing, right? Like what, what do I need to survive and stay healthy and feel good, right? That kind of thing. But, you know, maybe not Netflix, not, you know, these other things that I do for fun that bring me joy because it would hopefully be for a period of time that is short-lived, right? And so that makes sense that, you know, it would be cutting back and figuring out that number and, okay, that's an emergency fund. But I think something that has happened for me and I know has happened for other, you know, folks that I've talked to because this has come up in conversations even, you know, recently that, you know, there can be some shame and some self-judgment around what's wrong with me that I feel like I need more than the bare minimum, right? Like I think there's, especially in like the 
minimalist space, which has its own <laughs> like list of problems we could talk about. But um, this sort of moral hierarchy of like, look at me, I'm happy with so little, right? And that there can mm-hmm. be a lot of shame around, well, it actually really does bring me joy to have X, you know, luxury thing or that's considered luxury or, you know, that this idea of figuring out what enough is, it's like, I think there's, we were talking earlier about how almost everything is more complicated than we think it is. And this seems to be an area where that's really true of like, being willing to be honest with yourself about what you actually want and desire and need in order to like feel the best and thrive. And like, that's going to look different for everyone. But I don't think the end goal is like, how little can I possibly live off of and go with that? Oh, yeah. I feel like I've gone on my own journey with this with the van life movement and the tiny house movement because for so long I was like, yeah, I definitely want to live in a tiny house. And my boyfriend was like, well, I'm never living in a tiny house. And I was like, well, you're wrong. You know, like you're just you're wrong. You don't understand it yet. But like the answer is a tiny house. And realizing in the last year, like I would be so miserable in a tiny house. I I live in a three bedroom, two bath with a big living room and a big kitchen. And I love it. I love this amount of space. I love being able to shut doors and to not have to see anyone. It's so gratifying and just saying, Oh, okay. So for me enough actually is not like a van is not going to be enough. Mm -hmm, A mm -hmm. tiny house is not going to be enough. It's just not. Um, and that's okay. That's fine. No one's going to judge me because of that. Yeah. I mean, and it's, I mean, right now I'm literally at this moment house sitting for a friend, but, you know, I moved into a super tiny van this year, like post-divorce and, you know, kind of figuring some stuff out and I'm excited about it. And it's been awesome in certain ways and terrible in other ways, all sort of along the lines of what I expected. I feel like I went into it with my eyes very open about the reality of what the situation was going to be. But even from the very beginning, I'm like, I don't think this is forever, right? Like this is the right fit for me right now, financially and lifestyle wise. And that's great. And sort of to your point from earlier about um, wishing that people were more open about the help that they received financially for starting a business. Like even this van stuff, like living in a tiny van is really a lot easier easier for me because I have such generous friends who were like, hey, come do laundry here. Hey, come shower here. Hey, it's cold. Do you want to sleep here for the weekend? Like I have a huge, especially in Bend, like a huge support network of that kind of stuff. But, you know, living in a 20 square feet of living space for me is not forever. And maybe that's would be someone else's like forever deep joy. But I think that there's that part of the conversation too, of like what you need today might be different than what you needed five years ago and might be different five years from now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So this concept of enough is it's flexible, right? In just the same way that everything about our financial lives is flexible. And I also think (sighs) trying not to attach like, I mean, I do love hard numbers. I find them very satisfying. And like I said, I think 1.5 million is a good ballpark for a lot of younger folks, but also trying not to attach too much of your own self value to a number and trying to extract a feeling of enough from a number that, you know, what is the Shakespeare quote? It's like that way lies madness. <laughs> you know, like it's just too, I think too slippery of a slope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, in the, this idea that, um, like that enough can change, I think is like, can't be repeated, you know, can't be repeated enough times. And like, I think for me personally in my life in business, when I think about 2020, one of my 
top goals is to be able to take, um, starting at least the month of April off to go on a long hike. I'm someone who loves, you know, going out into the wilderness for a month plus at a time and being able to have time completely off to do that. Given the nature of my work, the trade-off is that I won't be earning any money, right? Like during that month, um, unless I were to change my business model. And that's fine. That's a sacrifice that I'm willing to make. It was sitting down and saying my priority is being able to take April off, even if that means no money comes in April. What does that mean for the rest of the year? You know, how does that change what enough looks like? And for other folks, that wouldn't be their priority. So I think like when I look at this question of enoughness, and obviously we're talking about it through the lens of money, but it could be, you know, talked about in every other arena. I keep going back to like, for me, what is required is relentless self-honesty. Like I have to be honest with myself about what I actually want and need, and then be willing to take action and make decisions with that. That compass. I love the phrase relentless self-honesty. I <laughs> that really resonates with me. Yeah, I say that a lot. You're welcome to have it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so last couple questions that we're going to tackle from folks. Um, this next one says, What do you do if your expenses are more than your income? Side hustles? Question mark. Mm, yes. Another very common situation for a lot of people in the United States and also probably around the world. The first thing that you have to do is understand the number. So you have to break it down and understand, okay, my income is $2,000 a month and my expenses are 2,500 a month. So there's a 500 discrepancy here. Where is that currently going? Onto a credit card? Am I asking friends or family for money? Am I just ignoring it? And like the bill is going to debt collectors or something? What's currently happening? Get as much clarity around that as you can. And then, yeah, I mean, the truth of the matter is in a capitalistic society, we have to have money to take care of ourselves. And you either need to increase your income via your main source of income, aka ask for a raise, or diversify your income streams. So that could be a side hustle. That could be trying to generate money some other way in terms of like stuff that you've already got going on. So yes, if you own a house, maybe renting out a room or renting out your lawnmower or something, you know, that, that generates a little extra cash. Um, but yeah, if you're not making enough to cover your bills, you just have to increase your income in whatever way you can and that you have the time and energy for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I love what you said about getting clear on, I know this isn't like exactly what you said, but getting clear on the truth. Like I find that one of the most empowering things again is like, let's to the best of our ability, get to the heart of what's true without judgment. Like, am I willing to have my eyes open and look at all of this with the only goal being information, right? Not to beat myself up with that information, not to automatically have to do anything with that information. Like, I think sometimes one of the issues that I have had is I think that, well, as soon as I know something about it, that means I have to like change my whole life as a result. It's like, "Mm, those are actually two separate things. You could collect all the information and then make no changes. Like, That's totally up to you. But like separating out into the phase of like, can I just be in a curious you know, like getting to the heart of what's true phase and then get all of those numbers, get all the bills, get all the debt, like get everything in front of me and like treat that as its own win of being able to get to the point where I have all the information. And that, I mean, that was really for me in terms of getting out of debt. And for me, my, my debt was student loans, but those student loans were from a couple of different, I had a few different loans. So like, let me just get everything in one place. Like what are the, what's, what are the interest rates? How much do I owe? What's the minimum payment? You know, and I, I didn't even want to look at any of it. Right. And so being able to be like, can I believe that I am tough enough and strong enough to just like look at this? And that was, it was tough, but that was like a really powerful first step for me. Oh yeah. I mean, I always tell my audience and my coaching clients that 
take judgment out of the equation and just look at the numbers with some grace for yourself. Again, going back to what we talked about earlier is, you know, you might be someplace that you don't feel thrilled about being, and it might not be due to any direct action on your own. Maybe there was a layoff at work or whatever, right? Um, And also it's so powerful to look at the numbers because so many of us don't because it can be uncomfortable or a little scary or feels intimidating. So we just choose not to. And saying, I actually choose to look at these numbers is some of the most like head rush, powerful feeling in the world. I love it because you're taking control of the narrative and that of itself is a huge step. So feel really proud of yourself for that. And then understand to your point, yeah, everything else is everything else, right? It's another step, but this one here, I'm going to sit down and look at it. That's a victory. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, another, you know, big learning lesson here or something that I had to unlearn was that I'm not smart enough to do this. Or, you know, it's, you you said before that a lot of the, you know, personal finance industry is like older white dudes, right? And so if you look at who has been in an expert role or who has been presented to you as an expert, and if any part of who they are, what their experience is, doesn't match with who you are, it's really easy. It was really easy for me to sort of like give my power away and think like, oh, well, they know more than me. And I can never, and I mean, sure, people who have studied things like might actually have more information, you know, than you do. But like, I don't know this yet. Like I really tried to rely on that word, but you know, I have to, had to keep telling myself like, you're a smart lady. Like you can learn, you can learn this. The information is there. Like the internet exists, like just start Googling shit. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know this yet is such a good phrase. Is there anything that you feel like you have had to unlearn sort of story-wise when it comes to money? Oh, definitely. For me, a huge part of my money journey that I feel like only in this past year I have really unlearned um, was that there is more money out there. Like there is not a finite amount of money um, for a very long time, most of my life. It felt like there will only be X amount of money and I didn't even want to go near that X amount. So I always lived so dramatically under that because bumping up against the X was like too hard and terrifying and it didn't seem like money was a renewable resource. It didn't seem like if I spent money I never thought I will get this back. I was like, now it's gone forever. Cool. Okay, great. I'm poorer than I was before. Mm -hmm. And it is only this year. And it's not even because I have made so much money this year. I make a very like modest amount of money, frankly. Um, But I don't know exactly what shifted, but I just started to believe that money will come back to me that money is not running away from me. Money is coming to me sometimes. Sometimes it's leaving me, but it's a, it's like a cycle. It will come back in other ways and other forms. And that has been like so peaceful is really, it's been exciting and awesome. And also I feel more at peace than I ever have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is great to hear. I love that. Um, last listener question um, says, what if I have debt that I want to pay off and I want to contribute to my 401k and save or invest? Oh my gosh. I love this question. This is a whole section of that investing course I just released because I get it all the time. And it's whether it's I have debt I want to pay off or I have cash savings I want to build and I want to be investing. How do I do both? So the first thing you have to figure out is how much money you have kind of extra to work with, Um, meaning all of your 
bills are paid, all the mandatory expenses are paid, how much is left over? If it's $100 or if it's $1,000, we just need to know. And then what's cool about a 401k is that your company will take the contributions directly out of your paycheck. So you'll sign up and say, I want 3% of my paycheck to go to to my 401k. And the company will take that out before you even get paid. So that 3% never even hits your paycheck or your bank account, which is great because you don't even have to think about it. But now you've got 3% less to work with to pay all those bills. So kind of a double side there. Just be sure that you understand how much is coming out of each paycheck and how you're going to pay all your bills afterwards. And then from there, I love debt payoff because that's how I got started with money. It like really lights me up inside. <laughs> it's such a fun thing to talk about because it's such an empowering experience. And each time you pay off a debt completely, you get money back, right? You're like, cool, now I don't have to pay that minimum payment anymore and I can do whatever I want with it. So focus on paying off one debt at a time. If you have five individual student loans, just pick one of them to focus on rather than spreading your extra payment across all five of them. So only 10 bucks goes to each one. You're not really going to make any headway on that, right? But if you pay an extra 50 bucks on one loan each month, you're going to make way more headway. So, So this is a long winded way of saying, let your pay, your employer take that money out of your paycheck via the 401k, focus on paying off one debt at a time and throwing extra payments at it throughout the month. Um, and you're, you'll begin to see progress on both fronts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what I'm hearing come out from what you're saying is just the value of having a plan of some kind, right? Like that, sure, there's lots of different ways that folks could go about it. And I feel like one of the places that I get trapped is thinking that I need to have the best plan in order to take action. And like a plan that I will actually do is better than maybe what is like the categorically best plan. Yes, exactly. A plan you will actually do is better than any other plan. And it's the same with anything, right? If someone says like, become a vegan and you're like, well, you know what? I'm not going to become a vegan, but I can stop eating fish. Like that's something that's going to work for me. Great. Awesome. More power to you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Is there anything that hasn't come up yet in this conversation that you would love to mention before we wrap up? Hmm. I would just say something that I see a lot, I get a lot of questions around is how to be socially responsible with your money and use your money to contribute to a world that you believe in. Um, And I just want to say there's a lot of ways you can do that. I think we get really caught up in this idea of if I can't donate $500 to my charity of choice each month, nothing else is worth doing. But that's not true. You can take your money out of like big bad bank X and start banking at a local credit union that's less evil. You can look to be invested in socially responsible investments that um, are better for the environment or are more ethical in whatever way you can. There's so many ways that you can use your money to live a life that you feel good about. And so I really want to encourage everyone to maybe kind of do a little audit there and say, what do I care about what causes are really important to me and how am I engaging with them financially? Mm -hmm. Am I making a donation of money or am I just thinking about it? 
Do I want to divest any of my money? I mean, what do I want to do here? What would feel good for me? And what would feel like actually making a change in my world? And that's really important. Not a change in the world, but a change in your world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I think about this question a lot as well. And one of the things that I've done in the last like couple of years is in kind of move away from uh, the more kind of like charity nonprofit space and into the kind of like supporting individual educators, activists, that kind of stuff using, frankly, Patreon, right? Like I obviously use it as a creator, but also, um, you know, having a line item in my budget that's, okay, $25 a month, you know, $5 to each, you know, to five different creators. And that's, I mean, it's funny, like, even as I say that, I'm thinking that's not very much. And I know how, you know, like people that are making those contributions to this podcast, like, let me do this work. And so the same is true, you know, for those folks. And it's like looking at where you want, you know, your money to go, what I feel like the the idea of, you know, voting with your dollars in lots of different ways. Yes, exactly. Voting with your dollars. And yeah, listen, I have a $20 budget workbook available on my website. And every time someone buys one, I'm like so unbelievably grateful because it allows me to continue doing the work I'm doing. Um, And it means I don't have to partner with corporate sponsors or, you know, write an extra freelance article. I'm like, this person has given me such a gift and it was only 20 bucks, you know? Mm -hmm, (laughs) Like, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. never knock the, the small contributions that you might be giving to someone else's life because it can make such a huge difference. Yeah. Um, one of the last questions questions that I would love to ask you, do you have a current money-related goal, either personally or professionally, that you want to share? Oh my gosh, yes. My biggest money goal right now is I want to add $5,000 to my emergency fund, which would bring me to about a year of living expenses in cash, which wasn't my goal for a really long time, but um, became a goal this year. And I've basically had to double my emergency fund. Um, But it feels really exciting to be so close. It feels a little bit of a downer to be so far. (laughs) Um, But I'm really looking forward to hitting that goal and just being like, whoa, in the words of Lizzo, I am 100% that bitch. Like I did this for myself by myself, especially because this is my first full year. 2019 is my first full year working for myself without a side hustle. And to know that I'm going to have doubled my emergency fund with money that I entirely created on my own feels like such an amazing accomplishment. Mm, Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) So the last thing, if you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, I know that you've given us lots, but any particular call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take to get started on some of the things that you have mentioned? I invite every listener to set aside time to have a little money date with yourself or if you have a romantic partner that you share finances with, sit down with them and just have a little money date, you know, light a candle, crack open a beer, have a glass of wine, put on some music you like and make kind of an event around it and really get intimate with your numbers, really understand what's coming in, what's going out, what are you spending on, what's bringing you joy, what's bumming you out and just take a look at the whole picture because from there, a lot of amazing things can happen. There's a lot of other steps to take, but that's really where it starts. It's such, such a good action step. I'm It's funny. I like, I do all this kind of stuff. I mean, not with the candle lit necessarily, but already, but this conversation is like, oh my gosh, making me excited to have some kind of more official money date with myself, especially as we get closer to the end of the year. Yeah. I really, I get 
very, I mean, I love candles, but I get very into the like, let's make this romantic. When yes, I have to open yes. my spreadsheets, I'm like, yeah, listen. Yes, I love it. Um, What is the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Yes, I spend way too much time on Instagram, but I'm a typical millennial. So catch me on the gram at We Bravely Go. I love it. And I will include that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was an amazing conversation. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Jackie. Hi, Jackie. Hey, Nicole. So we're going to do a fun little round of rapid fire questions if you're ready to tell me everything about yourself. (laughs) So ready. (laughs) What's one thing that you're feeling proud of from this year so far? Um, So I am about to get a promotion at my job. And the promotion is the exciting part. But when I um, was meeting with my like big, big boss about it, he mentioned that one of the reasons why he was giving me the job and giving me the promotion, he mentioned like my compassion for my coworkers. Um, and so that was something that was really, I was really proud of, um, that like my work is all really good and, and, um, I'm really contributing, but that he cited that as one of the big reasons, um, because that's something that I think I take really seriously. So I was really excited that he noticed that, um, in addition to all the other good work. Yeah. And that that's something you like how you treat other people, how you make them feel that that's something that's like part of a promotion process is really good to hear. Yeah. And it's an industry where you wouldn't typically think that. Um, so it was, that was just like a really great moment for me that somebody was, that was part of the promotion, I guess. Well, congratulations. Thank you. What's one thing that you think people would be surprised to learn about you? Oh, um, that I have imposter syndrome really, really badly. Um, even though I'm getting a promotion, I am constantly worried that I'm not doing enough or that my work isn't good enough. And I've been consciously thinking about how to overcome that. Um, and I, you know, I think a lot of times people think that I have a lot together and I made this big career change, um, about two years ago and that I've just, done really great and everything has been really wonderful and it has, but I've also been terrified every step of the way that I'm constantly doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have like severe imposter syndrome. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's relatable, right? Like I have no magic wisdom for you. So I I feel like, I mean, maybe there's like varying levels, right. And imposter syndrome, like anxiety or like anything else is something you can find like tools and coping mechanisms for, right. To like lessen Mm -hmm. it. But I feel like it's to some degree, everyone feels that at some point, right? And usually relatively, I mean, certainly I do. And anyone that I've talked to about it is like, oh yeah, you know, (laughs) what am I doing? Question mark, question mark, lay on the ground, like all the time, right? So I feel like- (laughs) this. <laughs> right, exactly. And so, I don't know, I feel like I have to remind myself of that sometimes too, but I agree with you that especially if, you know, on the outside it looks like, hey, I'm doing all these successful things, also both can be true. I don't think it has to be like a secret behind, you know, what's actually going on behind the curtain. It's like you can be really successful and like really joyful and all those things and also, you know, fear and other, etc., cetera, right. etc. Cetera. Yeah. yeah. No, I totally yeah. relate. You are not alone. Oh, good. <laughs> 
What's something that's bringing you a lot of joy lately? Um, my niece, uh, she is two and a half and she is, has this big, beautiful personality that is, she's becoming sort of her own person now. Um, and she is just discovering things and it's, it's just so pure and happy to watch her discover things. Um, so I just get a lot of joy in, and seeing her do things. Mm, that's so nice. I love that. <laughs> What's one thing that you've read or watched or listened to lately that you really enjoyed and want to recommend? Uh, well, someone just recommended Shit's Creek to me this weekend. Oh my and God, was it me? Because it has- it's my favorite show. <laughs> no, but it's it's a good run. One of my good running friends, um, and she was like, "We have to watch this after uh, we just ran a race uh, this weekend," and it it's hilarious and it's like hilarious and I never would have picked it out for myself unless someone had recommended it for me. And, um, it's, everyone should watch it cause it's hilarious. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm on my third watch through in preparation for the final season that comes out in January. So yes, completely right. agree. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. What's one thing that you wish people were more open and honest about? Um, I would say I wish people talked a little bit more honestly about things that they either regret or wish that they had done differently. I think there's so much of a live life with no regrets attitude. And for me, it just like that doesn't, I don't know. There's a lot that I wish that I would have done differently. There's a, there are things that I regret doing or regret not doing. And I just wish people talked a little bit more openly about yeah, hey, we we can do things that, you know, we don't always have to learn good lessons from them, I think. It's sometimes we can just wish we had done things differently or not done things. Um, and I, I feel like in my circles, I don't hear a lot of people talking about that. It's You have to have a lesson and it has to have been, you know, important or meaningful. And all of that is good and true. But I also just wish sometimes people said, yeah, I really wish I didn't do that. My life would have been really different if I had made this other choice. (laughs) Yeah, I agree completely, especially with the part about not trying to like silver lining everything. I think there's like anytime you share something that's potentially uncomfortable, right, or viewed as like a negative thing instead of a positive, right, like in the negative positive binary, that it's like you have to then like really quickly follow it up and be like, but it's okay because, right, or it wasn't a failure because less, it's like, no, like you can just be disappointed or you can just be regretful or you can just wish you did things differently. And yeah, I, I, I think about that a lot too. Like, especially I'm trying to catch myself and I'm, I'm not great at this, but I'm trying to catch myself on that as a listener, right? Like if a friend or someone is sharing something with me, like I don't have to, oh, but it's okay because this, like it can just not be okay. Right. Like we can just feel bad about something and we don't have to immediately have like a life lesson that makes it less uncomfortable or less bad. Um, And I I guess I just wish more people sort of said that instead of trying to like silver line it all Mm. the time. Yeah, that's really well said. So you are a member of our wonderful Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a small and powerful reoccurring per episode pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show and paying the guests and all of that good stuff. Can you share why you decided to support the show? Sure. Um, so I have been a fan of, of your work for a long time. Um, I think I've followed many iterations of the blog and, and all of the different things that you've done. Um, yeah, it's been a while. Uh, I feel like you've been in my corner of the internet for a very long time, which is lovely. Yeah, I think I, um, like for a really long time. So uh, I actually started running after you um, had posted a lot about 
running and being able to run for like two minutes, I was like, well, I, I can run for two minutes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and now I run marathons. So it, that it's sort of really exciting, but it was really when you, um, started your hike last summer. So wow. A while now. Um, and I was, I had just started a new job and I was looking forward to your daily posts all the time. And I was like, well, I love this content so much. Um, I really need to, you know, sort of support it. And one of the things that I have been doing this year has been really thinking about being more intentional with how I spend my time on the internet, how I spend my money, um, where my money is going and being really thoughtful about, well, I love consuming this content. I am looking forward to this every day. So why am I not? putting my money to support things that, that I really want to see more of. Um, and you asked, so I think that that's always really important. I think we should do more of asking for the things that, that we need to support our work. So, um, you asked and I, I love the content. Thanks. Yeah. That idea of sort of like values-based spending, right. That you're describing, like, what do I want more of? Can I put money towards that? I try to think about that in my own spending too, of like, what are the things that bring me a lot of joy or education or fun or, you know, whatever the thing is and try to be like, can I spend less on this other thing so that I can, you know, kick some money this way? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's for me, definitely it's a money-based thing, but it's also a time thing. Like, where do I want to spend my time? Mm -hmm. What are the things that, what's the type of information and, um, you know, places on the internet that I want to be spending um, my time? Um, And so I've been trying to be really intentional about that this year as well. Yeah, same. I think about it as like, which swimming pool do I want to be swimming in? And like, in terms of who do I want to surround myself with? Who's like doing work that I can really learn from, right? And and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And yeah, I've been thinking about that too. It's like just through Patreon specifically of like, okay, you know, here's the five people that I'm supporting this year or whatever, like trying to be intentional about that too. So yes, I love it. Um, do you want to share where you live and maybe a social media link if people want to say hi? Sure. Um, so I live just outside of Buffalo, New York. Um, and I grew up here. I've moved around quite a bit, but I am finally back home and, uh, I'd love for people to say hi. So I'm pretty much on Instagram and Twitter. So on Instagram at Jackie Hart, all one word, and then at JM underscore Sievert on Twitter. I love that. Thank you. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want lots of bonus content, plus other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $1 or more per episode. Your support is what allows this show to continue. And I can't wait to get to know you better once you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 